Well, friends, we want to come now uh, in our service to hearing God's word. And today I want to have us go to um, the book of Philippians, chapter one in particular. So I'm just going to take a little break from the Isaiah series and uh, talk about the Reformation today. So um, it's our tradition at this church at the end of October to talk about the Reformation, how uh, changes came to our theology, changes came to the way we worship, and even to the world uh, in a broader way. Through the Reformation, um, we have reformed in our name, and people ask, what does that mean? Well, we say our theology, our, our way of understanding the Bible comes uh, back to the Reformation, and before that, we believe they were recovering what uh, the Bible taught reviving what had been obscured. And so it's an opportunity uh, every October to talk about our heritage uh, as a church. And uh, today I want to talk about that in the context of Philippians uh, chapter 1. So I'm going to have us focus here on uh, verses um, 17, or the end of 17, beginning of, of uh, well, 18 here. We'll do 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 30. So I'm really going to focus in starting around verse 26, but we want to read for context. And we're going to be reminded here that our life as Christians is about more than just personal peace and affluence. So if you're able to stand comfortably at this time as we hear uh, the word read, uh, please do so as I read from Philippians chapter 1, 18 through 30. Hear the word of God. What then, only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word, a light to our path, a light in the darkness. We thank you that your word is powerful. Lord, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can think of a time when your word struck home to us, when your word cut us to the heart, when your word 
uh, showed us that we were living in sin that we needed to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that today Your Word would be powerful. And Lord, that You would even go above and beyond the humble means of Your Word and Your servant proclaiming Your Word. Lord, that Your Spirit would work powerfully and do far more than any preacher could do. Oh Lord, that the power would come from You. And Lord, that the effect you would build up your people in a powerful way and that your name would be glorified, not just by how we conduct ourselves today, but in our response to your word as we go from here, that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers also, and that, that we might be a light to the nations. Oh Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please uh, have a seat. Well, around 155 A.D., Polycarp was a Christian who was told to call Caesar Lord. He was threatened with the punishment of being burned with the fire that ended up consuming his life, and yet he responded this way, Eighty and six years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And before that, we recognize and remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel 3 that we just heard. They were thrown into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image or Daniel himself, we know. Um, refusing to stop praying to the Lord was thrown into the lion's den. Now, God preserved those people in the book of Daniel, and yet others like Polycarp have died for their faith. The Protestant Reformation, we might think of as a, a movement of martyrs, uh, men and women who died standing for their faith. And we need to hear that at times because, frankly, being a Christian today can seem fairly easy in comparison to what these people faced. Your Christianity is in many ways untested because it doesn't really cost you all that much or cost me all that much on a daily basis. But what if it did cost something? What if there was a high price to pay for your faith in Jesus Christ? More than just giving up the fleeting pleasures of sin that the world glamorizes. Do we believe that the truth of God's Word is worth dying for? That our lives are about more than just personal peace and affluence? Some things really are worth fighting for, worth suffering for. There are so many things that we take for granted that God's people had to fight for, like worship, like uh, hearing the Word of God proclaimed to us in our own language and being able to read it. Martin Luther said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. We might think about William Tyndale, who was strangled and burned at the stake on the 6th of October, 1536. He cried, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Or a little later, in October 16th, 1555, as they were being burned at the stake, Nicholas Ridley and his companion, uh, Hugh Latimer, Ridley said, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. And as the, the uh, sticks were burning up, Latimer said to his companion, raising his voice, he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man we shall see this day 
We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. We could add name after name uh, to talk about these Reformation martyrs, Heinrich Moeller, Charles Farber, Jean Raber, Sir Patrick Hamilton, Jean Diaz, uh, all the way back in 1415, Jan Hus. In England, Queen Mary executed nearly 300 Protestants in four years. Uh, there was a book of martyrs that tells the stories in 1554. It's 687 pages long. Now, if we find it surprising that so many people would give their lives for doctrine, for the gospel, for the word of God, for the church, then we should ask ourselves, do those things really mean much for us? Does the gospel mean all that much? And nor will the Apostle Paul's words here in Philippians 1 make much sense to us. Now, next Sunday, I'm planning to uh, preach another uh, sermon as a departure from Isaiah, but it's from John 4. It's where Jesus talks about having a food that people know nothing about. And there we'll hear that sometimes Christians do things that the world just doesn't understand, that are strange and don't make sense to the world. In many ways, Christianity can be countercultural, and things in the Bible run contrary to our expectations. The very fact that we have a Savior who was crucified, God becoming man and giving himself to death and suffering doesn't make sense to the world. We might think of Acts chapter 5 and the apostles are brought to the Jewish authorities in the Sanhedrin and they, they beat them. They charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then something amazing happens. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I don't know if that would be our response to being beaten and persecuted, but they rejoiced. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. There's something about this, seeing this as the triumphant Christian life, living your best life now, that's very different from the way our world presents a good life. It wasn't rejoicing that the council agreed with them and gave them great freedom. It wasn't rejoicing that they had people in places of power and influence. They were rejoicing in suffering for the right cause. And that's shocking to us in many ways because we're allergic and anemic to discomfort, to hardship, even to awkward situations. We find it shocking because in many ways we have been conformed in our minds to the ways of this world and their thinking. Even though we know better, we've drunk into the health and wealth idea of prosperity, believing that as life, as our lives as Christians should be triumphant in a worldly sense, that our life will be one of making friends and influencing people, of gaining cultural ground, and yet the message of salvation is not one that's going to have a lot of success because people are blind. They have hard hearts. They have ears that cannot hear because the gospel is always one that confronts human beings, that confronts human sin. In Sunday school uh, this morning, we heard from 1 Kings uh, how one of the, the kings didn't want to call on the Lord's prophet, not because he spoke falsehood, but because he had a message that didn't uh, wasn't what he wanted to hear. 
He always prophesies evil concerning me. This is a message we have as Christians. Paul told the Corinthians, it's a folly to the world. A message that brings human beings and their pride, uh, that human beings and their pride and sin reject. And so that means that heralds of the gospel, faithful Christians are going to be persecuted and rejected. We're not going to be popular, but strangers and exiles that we might face what these apostles faced, what these martyrs faced. We have, as Martin Luther put it, a theology of the cross, not a theology of worldly glory. And so when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, I think he was trying to get his audience to have that same attitude that the apostles had in Acts 5, to be able to rejoice in suffering for the right cause. And that's a tall order, isn't it? that you and I would actually rejoice in being called by God's name and even suffering for His sake. This is more than just enduring suffering, grinning and bearing persecution. This is actually rejoicing in it. Not that there's anything good in suffering in itself, but in being like Christ, in serving Him. See, suffering is a tremendous tool that God uses in our lives to grow Christians. I think Steve Doe is going to preach on suffering for Christ as well today, so this fits. But suffering has been called the school of Christ. You might think about Joseph and all that he had to suffer before he got to Pharaoh's court. And Pharaoh said, where can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? How do we? How do you get other people to buy into suffering for Christ? That was the Apostle Paul's challenge. And it's not the Tom Sawyer approach of tricking people into enjoying something like painting whitewash offense. Um, but the Apostle Paul doesn't have to trick us. He's given us insight into his own experience as he's written this chapter first of Philippians. He said that the Lord is going to use this, his experience being in chains as a house or uh, under house arrest. God's going to use that for good. And he said, we heard in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I want you to see that he also shows us glory in Christ. Paul's going to go on to say in this great book that he considers everything rubbish compared to knowing Christ. This is how he can say what he does here, how he can value his life and yet not idolize living. He treasures Christ more than he treasures his own life. And the text gets at this here. He's he says he wants the Philippians to be able to have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. That's a challenge for us. Do you glory in Christ Jesus? This is one of the reasons that the martyrs could give their lives for their faith. They knew the glory of Jesus Christ. Christ became all-consuming. There's a renewed grasping that we have of uh, that man's chief end, our, our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That those things are, are bound up together. That's your purpose in life. God's glory becomes our delight. We might ask, should we pity these martyrs? These people who had to give their life and had to suffer for Christ's sake. In our flesh, we might pity them, but that's because we love the world and we've adopted their standards of what a good life should be. But when God's glory has so enthralled our hearts, we rejoice even to be found worthy to suffer for His name, for His glory. 
The Reformation, we know, is a recovery of solo, soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone. God gets all the glory. You know, probably of Sebastian, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, he wrote SDG, so, soli deo gloria, on the bottom of his uh, scores. We give God all the glory for what we have accomplished and achieved. Martin Luther, one of the great Reformation figures, said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. While I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. And that's one of the great points of the Reformation. God does it all. God does it all. He uses us, he uses means, but he gets all the glory. And remember, the Reformation came with a recovery of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who does what we could not do to save ourselves. But he transforms us, that with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 2 Corinthians says, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, part of glorifying God now is glorying more and more in being like Him than having whatever the world points out is so great to have and be like. Glorying in God and being like Him. Well, Paul also explains how believers can endure suffering and persecution. He says that believers in persecution and suffering are united to Christ and not frightened. We might think about the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, uh, how it shows us that God's people endured all this suffering. How? Because they weren't looking at this present world, but they were looking at the world to come. They had their hearts set on God himself who makes heaven great. When we suffer for our faith, living by faith, we're joining that great cloud of witnesses. And notice the picture of verses 27 and 28 here in Philippians chapter 1. He says, you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Then verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. Now, a little bit of background on Philippians. This city of Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father. And these great figures in history are known for their use of the uh, formation phalanx. Men in a phalanx would stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, their, their weapons keeping the enemies at bay. And Paul knows his audience. He, know many, he knew, knew that many of them were retired Roman soldiers. And he calls God's people to have that picture in mind, that together they're like a phalanx, a battle formation, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. With that image, what happens when the battle line breaks apart and people are isolated from each other? Well, when the battle line breaks, the army's defeated. There's a reminder here that we need other Christians. We need to stand side by side for them. For what? For the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to have one mind being united with them. And you might think of that image and think that's a fearful thing. Fighting for the truth. Being in battle formation. Well, 
Paul then says, don't be afraid. Don't be frightened by your opponents. Verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. I think so many Christians today are fearful of persecution. And yet Paul says, this is a sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When God's people may face persecution, when they're harmed for their faith, in a way that's difficult for our minds to get around, Paul here, the apostle says, it's a signal of who truly holds power. It's a signal of their destruction because it's a reminder that one day they will be defeated, that there has to be a conflict between good and evil, and that one day God will bring justice and victory. In the end, evil will be destroyed. He says this is a clear sign, not just of their destruction, evil's destruction, but of our salvation. And he says that is from God. This is God's work. We might remember that great Reformation uh, idea, grace alone, faith alone. We're saved by what God does, not what we do. Now, Paul is telling Christians that when we suffer for doing what is right, when we suffer for the gospel, it's a positive and not a negative. Not that we seek suffering, not that we uh, invite persecution upon ourselves, but he's saying far from being something that should make Christians shrink back and say we must be doing something wrong, it should embolden us as a confirmation of the truths that we're proclaiming. Because you might dig deeper, why is it that you're experiencing this persecution. It's because you're morally different than the world. You're set apart from them. Paul's going to say in chapter 2 that believers in Jesus Christ shine as lights in a dark world. You aren't of this world. You stand out as being different. We're not holier than other people. We, we still fight against crookedness and twistedness in our own hearts, but at the same time, God has done something in us that makes us different. Dawn new creation in us by His Spirit. I'm sure many of you have played Capture the Flag in your youth, as I did. Um, but you notice that those who most successfully sneak around in the darkness are not those who have opposition. If you're blending in, you're not going to be chased after. But it's those people who shine, so to speak who are seen by others in the darkness. It's those people that are being chased. Here, Paul is telling the Philippians that when you're persecuted, it's related to your shining in the darkness. You're not blending in and being like the world. One of the Reformation martyrs wrote these words from prison. He said, let them burn, let them strangle, let them kill and murder by fires, nooses, and sword and water as much as they want. The word of God still remains and will remain eternally. I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul puts this all in perspective in verse 29. This really could be the theme verse of what I've been talking about, but he says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Let me say that again. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Now think for a moment about the greatest privileges you've been given in life. Some of you have been given honors, awards, scholarships, being chosen first on the, the basketball court, uh, 
Privileges are these honors that people bestow upon us. Uh, I've been blessed to have some um, opportunities, you know, uh, doing officiating people's weddings, um, doing people's funerals is always an honor. Um, these are things that I've been invited to do. Privileges. Well, the Philippians had the great privilege of being in this Roman colony, and this was something that Paul knew the people he was writing to gloried in. They enjoyed this privilege. Probably most of the people there were Roman citizens, which was a great privilege. Paul uh, had people surprised that he was a Roman citizen because this was a great privilege. And yet none of the privileges that the people, the Philippians had, that you and I have enjoyed, can compare to the privilege of believing in Jesus Christ. And Paul says that here in verse 29, using that word granted. It's been granted to you. It's been privileged to you to believe in Christ. And this is from God. But notice that word. It's the word charis as well. You've been graced. You've been granted. You've been privileged. There's a really remarkable thing that God is not only graciously granted for you to believe in Jesus Christ, but He also gives us the punchline here, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. That's a great privilege, the Apostle Paul says. Now that seems like an oxymoron to us because how, oh, we, we don't think privilege and suffering can go together in the same uh, sentence. But the dynamics of the Christian life are we're dying to self. We're being made like our Savior who endured a life of humiliation and suffering. Paul is going to talk about all his accomplishments in Judaism later. He's going to talk about all these things that in the flesh seem so great. And he's going to say they're nothing. They're rubbish compared to knowing Christ. He's going to say that he wants to know what it's like to share in Christ's sufferings. This is chapter 3 of Philippians and His resurrection power. You can't separate the suffering of Christ from His resurrection power. Now, we might say, we all want to know the power of Christ's resurrection like Paul did, but do we, can we also echo what the Apostle Paul said about knowing Christ and sharing in His sufferings? Listen to what he says. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my, my Lord, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Notice those two things. He says he wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection, but also may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. These are amazing things. Now, Paul's not a masochist. He doesn't enjoy suffering and pain in itself. He doesn't see suffering as being redemptive, that the more he suffers, somehow uh, the more holy he gets. He knows there are unbelievers who suffer tremendously, and there's nothing redemptive in that. But he's saying that there's something about suffering as Christ did that unites us to him, that gives us insight into who he is, that we become more like him in suffering as he did. 
This isn't redemptive. We're not sharing in the once and for all work of Jesus Christ. But we know Him in a particular way as we suffer for His sake. And in that, we also know the power of the resurrection, the power that can sustain a person even through suffering. This is how Paul will talk in 2 Corinthians about having treasures in jars of clay. This is how he can say in 2 Corinthians 12 that he has a thorn in his flesh. He's suffering and yet God's power is made perfect in weakness. What power it is when God enables his people to rejoice even in suffering, to endure even in such times, to be able to say to live is Christ, to die is gain looking ahead to the resurrection and having that future hope impact the way you live now. This is how you can rejoice when you're counted worthy to suffer for Christ. You know Christ, the eternal Son of God who gave Himself to a life of suffering and even death for the right cause, for your sake. Friends, let that sink in. Jesus suffered and died for your sake. Are you willing to suffer for his sake. Perhaps you're not going to be persecuted tomorrow or next year the way that these Reformation martyrs were, or Daniel and his companions were, even how Christians today are suffering and being persecuted in other countries. Yet you're still called to a life of self-denial, being a light in the darkness for the sake of Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ has to be precious to you to suffer for his sake. Hugh Latimer, one of the Reformation martyrs that I mentioned at the beginning who was burned at the stake. He treasured the gospel. He treasured preaching. He said, preaching is necessary for take away preaching and take away salvation. He treasured the gospel. He said, all the papists think themselves to be saved by the law. And I myself was of that dangerous, perilous, and damnable opinion till I was 30 years of age. God hath delivered me. I am a Christian man, the child of everlasting joy through the merits of the bitter passion of Christ. He even preached, happy is he to whom it is given to suffer for God's holy word's sake. Here is not our home. Let us therefore accordingly consider things, having always before our eyes that heavenly Jerusalem and the way thereto in persecution. So interesting, he could say those words and then live it out. This is why the martyrs of the past, including the Reformation martyrs, they gave their lives for their faith because the gospel was precious to them. The word of God was precious and powerful to them. This is the most important news anyone will ever hear. The church can't be distracted from this message and justification by faith that Paul exalted so much, a righteousness that's not my own that comes through faith. That's so freeing. The Reformation people, they rejoiced in that. It's so clear in the Bible. It's something you can stake your life upon. We're so sinful in ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can never do enough to please God on our own. And yet the gospel tells us that God imparts a righteousness to us. He counts a righteousness to us through faith in Jesus. The Reformation pattern that the Heidelberg Catechism expresses was so revolutionary. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Uh, that pattern was revolutionary because the church before the Reformation, for the most part, was confused. They didn't have that pattern. Instead, justification and sanctification were merged together. 
it was taught that God helps those who help themselves, which is bad news if you recognize that you can't ever help yourself. Christ is not the only mediator. That's what the church taught. Scripture was not available to the people. Instead of looking to the Holy Spirit, people looked to the priests who did sacraments, who worked, which worked automatically, not through faith. And the Reformation recovered the truth. These are not ivory tower dogmas, that, but they're truths that set the heart free. Jesus gave himself for our sins, was raised for our justification. I think there's a great story that illustrates our love in response to the God who loves us, the Christ who died for us. There's a story about Cyrus, the great conqueror uh, of the known world, including Babylon. He had a general uh, under his authority whose wife was suspected of of treason, and they had a, a trial before this great tribunal. She was found guilty, and she was sentenced to death. And after the sentence of death was pronounced, the man's wife, a general, made his way to the throne and said, King Cyrus, please let me take her place. Cyrus was in awe of what he saw going on. He said to his court, can we terminate a love as great as this? And then he let the woman off, paroled her to her husband. And as they left the court, the general said to his wife, did you see that kind look? In the, in the king's face as he pardoned you. And the wife said, I only have eyes for the one who loved me enough he was willing to die for me. Do you have your eyes on him who loves you, that he died for you, for your sins, to give you his righteousness? Do you have your thoughts focused on the Savior? And as you do so, remember that Christ identifies with his church in persecution. Remember he said to Paul on the Damascus road, why are you persecuting me? As Paul was saw it, as he was known then, was persecuting the church. Christ identifies himself with you as you suffer for his sake. And he will conquer in time all his and our enemies. And so we stand firm. We, we, we fight for the gospel. We tell others of this great Savior who was rich beyond all splendor and became poor for our sakes. Let's pray in his name. Our Heavenly Father, we do confess that so often our thinking is is worldly, that we make our life about personal peace and affluence, and we pray that you would forgive us for such things, for having our minds conformed to this world. Help us to have even the beginning of an inkling of what it means to suffer, to rejoice in suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, where we have sinful attitudes and thoughts towards this, where we would shrink back, we pray that you would change us by your Spirit. Lord God, we pray that in this, no man would be exalted, that we don't praise people for what they've done, but Lord, we praise you, the God who gives strength, the God who gives a joy in the Lord that makes people willing to suffer for you for the sake of Christ. Lord, work in us by that same Spirit. Help us to glory more and more in Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen.